Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may, as I wrote for the paper tomorrow, uh, you may want to be sitting down right now. You may want to, uh, I don't know, have something that soothes you nearby, <laughs> a blanket that's familiar, uh, your thumb perhaps, if you just want to suck on that, maybe just curl into the fetal position. Because a report that came out today, it's going to go to council next Wednesday, but the report was released today, it comes from the city's finance department. They do this every year. They give a preliminary look at what the budget is going to be, what the numbers are probably going to look like based on all kinds of things, uh, inflation and downloading from other levels of government and programs that the council has decided to invest in and all kinds of other things. You may have heard it on the news uh, long ago, a couple months ago, we heard from a number of councillors, including the one I'm going to talk to in a minute, that, you know, 10%, double digits of some kind is probably almost certainly going to be the thing. Today, we heard that unless something pretty outstanding happens, we're going to be looking at a 14.2% municipal tax increase this year coming, 2024, 14.2%. Keeping in mind that the two years ago, it was 2.2. tax increase is what we're looking at right now. So if you, if you pay $6,000 in taxes, and many people in the city pay in that ballpark, you're looking at more than $1,000 more added to your tax levy. Let me bring in... Councillor Matt Francis, uh, Ward 5 Councillor, joins me now. Matt, how are you today? Well, uh, I think you summed it up well. It is a spooky Wednesday the 13th. Uh, I was pretty spooked when I saw the 14.2% report come out today around noon. Uh, and I still haven't been able to shake it. I'm wondering if I'm living in a bad dream at the moment. Well, I mean, you were one of the ones who said we're looking at at least double digits, something around 10%. Uh, was this still a surprise that it was 50%, almost even higher, 40% higher than even your worst estimation? Well, you try to remain optimistic. I was optimistic uh, that maybe we wouldn't get this high. Uh, maybe we'd start a little bit lower than this. I mean, but I did predict this. I did say that it was going to be double digits just based on uh, everything that I've seen over the last six months, some of the uh, ref- referred items. Um, uh, housing and homelessness is one of the main themes in this budget that's coming up, that we have a lot of those pressures uh, that are in front of us right now, uh, including uh, provincial downloading and, and inflation. So you combine these three, and, and we've got a perfect storm in front of us. For uh, It's a recipe for disaster, and I, I know for sure this is going to be a long winter for me, um, this is an item that I really care about solving. I, I don't want to see, I mean, I opposed a 5.8% increase last year. Uh, I'm certainly not getting, I'm certainly not going to support anything even in that range, let alone 14%. Um, so I've got my work cut out for me the next six months um, until we get to March and ratify, uh, when we get to the ratification step. Um, I've got my work cut out for me. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got to work together as a council to, try to find some area to, of improvement to get this down and, and get creative uh, because there's no way you can go uh, asking ratepayers for a 14% tax increase. I know what I'm hearing in my ward, uh, there's not that ability to pay here. I don't know about you, um, $55, 60 to $100 a month uh, extra, no, who has that kind of money? Nobody has that kind of money. Um, I'm certainly not going to my residence and asking for that. And on top of it, 
the question that I got asked after the 5.8% passed, which I, I, I said no to, um, what am I getting for this money, Matt? Um, I'm not getting any more services for this. So we've got a lot of work to do over mm. the next six months. Matt, though, uh, my question is, when I hear all this, so every year we get, at this point, we get a number that is higher than what it eventually will get to. Usually, council takes this number and whittles it down a bit, and there you go. However, last year, council got a number that I think was around 6.7%, whittled and whittled and whittled, but then added and added and added and got right back to 6.7%. It was only at the last minute when the mayor came in with an idea to get it down to 58 What's your level of confidence that we're going to have a council willing to whittle this down and get rid of some programs and projects and get this to a less outrageous number? Yeah, you've summed that up perfectly. And this is hitting people hard at a time they're, that they're looking for relief. The economic conditions in this country right now uh, are not too good and they're not, the forecast is not very good as well. Um, the confidence that I have in this, I tell you, I, I, I sure hope I'm trying to stay optimistic that, you know, we can maybe get some unanimous unanimity across the room and, 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 um, people will see that this is an unacceptable number. Um, my hope is that, uh, at least I can get eight other counselors to agree with me, which would be a majority of council. We can push some of these items forward and, and try to dwindle this budget down. Um, significantly. I mean, <laughs> this, and you have to remember too, the historical average is two, two and a half percent, like you mentioned. Um, and we're way far off right now. So we, like I said, we've got our work cut out for us. And, and especially with the uh, affordable housing front right now, which uh, might I add, um, we're creating the same problem that we're trying to solve. Affordable housing is one of the main priorities for council in this report. And yet we're kicking people out of their own homes by raising taxes this much. So we're creating the same, we're trying to solve this problem that we've created. And we have to get serious about this budget. And uh, that's what I intend to do for the next six months. So how, I mean, what, what can, what can be done? Is there anything that until even the budget process, is there anything that can be done that can at least stem some of the spending, convince some other counselors don't keep adding stuff? What do we do to, to stop this? Well, there's lots of we can't get away from the uh, inflation, uh, provincial downloading. Uh, those are pressures that simply we're not is going to be very difficult to get away with. There maybe there's some break glass uh, in case of emergency funds, a rainy day fund. We can look at maybe some of our reserves. And that's not a sustainable way of doing business. But in in a time like this, you can't go to hardworking taxpayers and expect them to pay 14. percent So this is our this is the rainy day. And uh, we have to look at all options. I'm going to sit down with finance staff uh, myself and um, and try to work out something to bring to council, motions to get support on. Maybe we have to look at, which I'm suggesting right off the bat, is a is a uh, a wage, uh, or sorry, a, a hiring freeze. Last year, we hired 130 new full-time employees. Um, that's more, just for context, that's more full-time employees in, in one budget cycle than the previous four years combined. So this is maybe the year that we say, listen, we're putting the brakes on this for a year until we get, until we get this budget under control. I, I just, I've yet to see, and not just your, your term of council. I mean, for a while now, I've yet to see a great push on by councillors recently or more historically 
to cut stuff though. This is part of the problem is that the council, nobody gets elected by cutting stuff. So you come in and you want to add things and you want to be able to say, well, this is my program. And I, you know, nobody, nobody gets a plaque, a bronze plaque put up in a community center for taking funding away from something. You get it for spending. And I just have not seen in recent years, any, any indication council wants to take a hard look at spending only how to spend. That's a, a fair assumption. I, I, I agree with you. There's uh, listen. We've got a we've got our work cut out for us here. I um, I know it's going to be a challenging six months, and and every single one of us is going to have to look at that budget long and hard and say what do we need and what do we want. And the wants are going to have to get put on the on the sideline for now. Um, will it though? Simply, will they? Sorry to interrupt, but will I, they? I, I certainly hope so. I I, I can't imagine. <laughs> Listen, Scott. I, when I when this budget was published at five point eight percent, my my office for two straight months was call after call after call. People absolutely livid with five point eight percent. People on calling me crying about five point eight percent. I and and I'd have to think. Uh, I don't live in the center of the universe here in Ward Five. This is. I guarantee you, this is a theme throughout the rest of Hamilton. I guarantee other councillors are also hearing this, and uh, we we have to go. We have to look at this budget through a compassionate lens. Have you now? I know this only landed today, and you guys had a council meeting, and you were in the middle of the meeting when this came, so you you, you didn't have a ton of time to look at this. But have you heard from any other councillors about their reaction to this? Uh, truthfully, no. I, it, like like you said, it did come in the middle of the council meeting. I, I have. Just, I haven't even took a deep dive on the uh, report that uh, came out just recently, a few hours ago. Uh, you know, that's for the September 20th, the GIC meeting. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing my colleagues' feedback. And I, and I assume there'll be uh, similar positions to mine. That it's, it's an unacceptable amount. I, there's no doubt there's other councillors feeling the same way as I feel on this issue. Yeah, I mean, it, last time it was unusual, last budget last year, it was unusual because there were, was it six of you that voted against the budget? Ultimately, in the end, there was six. You know, it, it did look like it, it could have failed on an 8-8 tie at that ratification vote. And then a, a last-minute amendment from our mayor came in, uh, which brought it down to 5.8. I, I still voted against that. It, for me, that was still too high. Um, but it, it, the vote did go 10 to 6 in that uh, ratification vote, and ultimately that's where we ended up for 2023. Yeah, we'll, we'll see, because if, if 6 were against it at 5.8, I, I, I do wonder if there's two more that will say no, if it's at 9 or 10 or something like that, and then I don't know that Hamilton has ever been in the position where a budget process failed and... We could be heading into some very uncharted territory here if, uh, if that were to happen. We will, uh, we'll be, look, everybody's going to be following this very closely. Matt Francis, Ward 5 Counselor, appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate you having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many people are old enough to remember when it was a real joke. Maybe it still is a joke. I don't know. I haven't heard it in a long time. But people used to joke about when the Pentagon in the States would go to buy something, they'd buy a pen and it would cost $800 or a toilet would be $12,000 because, you know, you're, it's, it's government and it's not really paying all that close attention and someone decides to up the charge and yeah, it's just, you know, who, it's not my money, it's taxpayers' money. Well, it's not really a joke when you're, taxpayers are squeezed. We were just talking about it here in Hamilton, what's coming down the pipe. So is there a better way to, for 
the public, for the government, for the province or the feds, but someone to procure stuff. Because in the province, every year, $30 billion apparently is spent to procure goods and things like that. Is there a better way to do it that can save the taxpayers money? Can we reinvestigate this and do it better? Rocco Rossi is president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce joins us now. Rocco, how are you today? Fantastic, Scott. Thank you for shining a light on this. Well, it, you know what? As I say, it, for a long time, it was a real joke, mostly in the States and mostly with the Pentagon, and they always found these crazy things yeah. that they spent on. But you knew that if it was happening there on a lesser scale, it was happening here to some degree. Is it still, before we get to what we can do about it, is that still happening to a lesser degree? Well, look, the the real danger, we think, where the even bigger savings are to be had is that sometimes um, the reaction to those uh, stories is that you want to get things at the absolute cheapest price regardless. And what we're seeing is that in many cases, we're being uh, penny wise and pound foolish. And let me give you just one example that all of us are aware of. Everyone focuses on the $9,000 hammers to the U.S. Army. But we saw very much during COVID where we were um, we had gotten uh, supply contracts with companies in China for masks and other things because they were the absolute cheapest uh, price in the in the world. And when the material hit the fan, um, we couldn't get supply. Uh, And so the notion that, uh, you know, just in time at the lowest possible price, in a lot of cases, just in case, uh, with a little bit of an insurance premium built in, is not a bad thing and ends up saving more in uh, the long run. That's one extreme example, but we've got lots of other areas where value-based purchasing as opposed to just thinking about the lowest price is actually the smartest way to move forward. That's what I was just going to ask because uh, our family right now is in the middle of a home renovation. I don't advise it. I don't advise living at home when the house is being renovated, but that's a totally different topic. We're going insane. Nonetheless, we have had decisions to make at times about product or whatever. Do you buy the one that is the least expensive or do you buy the one that is the best value for the money? Typically, it seems in the public sector, it is always now just buy the cheapest one. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but is that always the best way to do it? Well, we would argue no. And unfortunately, because of the the stories and the backlash against things like the $9,000 hammer, I have tremendous sympathy for folks like Supply Ontario that are looking to uh, get the lowest price possible because you get the lowest price, you don't get fired and you don't get pilloried uh, in the media. But when that lowest price doesn't give you the value or you don't have access to it or it doesn't produce the results and so you end up using five of them at the end instead of one, um, then that's, that's what needs to be accounted for. And that's really the focus of, uh, of our paper and, and the focus of this 
really trying to underscore value-based purchasing going forward because we're trying to make those dollars work as hard as possible to fulfill the full purpose of what it is that we want to do. And when you've got $30 billion of purchasing, that actually gives you a fair bit of leverage um, to do multiple things uh, to get even better results for the economy. Right. And let me go back to my example for a second of doing the rentals, because if I have to get a new door, for example, and there's five different levels of doors, I as an individual can go and look and say, okay, you know what? It's a little bit more, but I can see it's way better. If you're buying for the province, every taxpayer doesn't get to look and see what you're buying. They all they have to take your word for it. And, you know, you're not always going to take someone's word for it when it costs more money. So you're right. It's the very easiest way just to choose the lowest price and assume that that's always going to be the best. That is exactly it. In a nutshell, that is at the heart of, uh, of this work. So how do we do it better then? Because I know this is what everyone's always chasing. How do we find that sweet spot where it's not always the absolute cheapest, but you are getting the best value? How do we do that? Well, you can still um, work calculations. Um, I mean, you don't want to do it just on the basis of gut and, uh, well, I think this will last longer. There is a ton of information and, uh, you know, we talk about all of the artificial intelligence that's available and computing power. So let's understand that we can do multivariable equations, right? We can, we can think about, for instance, within the medical process, not just, not just the cost of an individual product, but if you do that procedure versus, say, another procedure that is more expensive, but that the data shows that the chance of the person coming back for a follow-up is reduced by 50%, mm. and it's 10% more, that's some pretty good uh, calculation to add in terms of developing a case for buying um, the higher-priced um, medical device or building in procedures that may be more expensive up front, but if you look at the lifetime cost, if you will, about the number of re-entries, uh, you're actually saving money. Rocco, we, another- we, we only have 30 seconds, but I, I want to go to that for a second. I want to give you the last 30 seconds here because I wonder if that's doable though. And the reason I say that so many people have become so cynical and skeptical of their politicians. I wonder if we still have a level of trust that even if someone says the data says this is better, do we even believe the data or does it have to come out of the right politician's mouth for us to believe that? Well, I think that the proof is in the pudding and you have to show the results. So uh, this is not just going to be any one person's word at one time, but it's building the actions and the results that will build that trust uh, over time. And, and you've got to start somewhere. And this is our contribution to that discussion. Mm. It is uh, it is a great discussion to have. Uh, you can find, uh, you go on the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, there's a media release, Unlocking the Potential of Public Procurement in Ontario. It's worth reading uh, if you're interested in this, about how we do this better. Rocco Rossi is President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. 
I appreciate you shining a light on this. It's an important discussion, and all of us got to get behind it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something now that th- this is such uh, a fascinating and difficult and oftentimes, quite frankly, frustrating topic. I'm not going to lie about that one. In fact, uh, we may hear the word exhausting come up at some point in our discussion because that was one of the things that uh, that this survey and this work found. But we're going to talk about cancel culture and culture relations and can- culture wars and all that kind of stuff in general because Angus Reid has done some work talking to people of different age groups in this country to find out what they think about what we'll call the culture wars. Things like, you know, on university campuses, should speakers who have what some would describe as offensive or off the mainstream views be allowed to speak? Or should books that may have, you know, classic books, but that may have something in it that by today's standards, somebody might say is offensive. Should they be allowed to be published or even available in libraries or should they be rewritten or should people be self-censoring themselves out of fear that someone's going to cancel them? All that kind of stuff. You know exactly what I'm talking about because you live it. We live it. We all live it every day. John Rowe is a research associate with Angus Reid. Joins me now. John, how are you today? Well, how are you, Scott? I'm excellent. I love that you guys did this because this to me is, it really, I'm not overstating this. This to me is one of the real issues of our time. And I say that because I I don't know, this is always going to be one of those things that just divides us, unfortunately. And and your research seems to show that, but this is one of those things that it seems generationally in a lot of ways, we just feel so differently about a lot of these things. Yeah, uh, so we, we undertook this study and we wanted to look at kind of a wide range of issues. We wanted to look at things like, yeah, cancel culture, uh, free speech, uh, and all these kind of things um, that people have kind of wrapped up together uh, in what a lot of people are calling kind of the culture wars. Uh, so we, we released the first part, and this is going to be a multi-part series uh, this week. Um, kind of specifically looking at uh, how people feel about kind of these discussions and these topics. So uh, our respondents had a chance to kind of answer questions about a lot of different topics. And then they were asked, okay, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about these discussions that a lot of people label as the culture wars? And a lot of people, I think, find what you said, like it's very divisive. 60% say that it's divisive. 59% find it exhausting. And there's a lot of people, 40% out there, who find kind of these debates over a lot of different things like gender, gender. and say like cancel culture and all these things, they find that unnecessary as well. So it's, uh, this is kind of the first part of broad ranging studies, but it's, uh, it's been, it's been pretty eye opening so far. Well, and, and when it's, whether it's exhausting or unnecessary, I would dare say there probably isn't a day that goes by, certainly on social media, there's not a day that goes by, excuse me, that there's not somebody somewhere in the public eye who's finding themselves in the center of a storm about this almost every day, I would suggest. And I, yeah, and I think that's why it's kind of important to kind of take a look at this and see how kind of the broader public is a- answering this. And I think what we what we found, and we kind of we took answers to for people that had to a lot of different questions. So we kind of segmented our respondents into different groups um, 
on kind of different ends of the spectrum, people who are saying that, okay, all of these things are good. We need to talk about these things. We need to uh, be more careful with our language. We need to kind of be more accepting and open to kind of different gender identities and these kind of issues. And people at the other end who are like maybe a bit more resistant to those concepts and a bit more feeling like this is uh, unnecessary and free the kind of limits people are putting on free speech are somewhat punishing and those kind of things. And so there are kind of people on those opposite ends of the spectrum, but there are a lot of Canadians who kind of fall into the middle, who kind of look at these issues from both sides and maybe aren't nearly as polarizing, but they're, it, you don't get to hear from them as much because I feel like social media, at least personally, I see, you kind of hear from the uh, the farther ends of the spectrum exactly. on these issues a lot more than kind of the people in the middle. A hundred percent, a hundred percent right on that one. Uh, let's go through some of the numbers that you found. We we can't do all of them. People can go and look it up, and I would encourage people to. It's really, really interesting. But let's go through a few of these, and let's start with one of the real problems that we're obviously facing here. When you're talking about cancel culture or free speech or suppressing free speech or all that thing, it's not just that we have views. It's 52% believe the trend of canceling public figures and, and celebrities is suppressing free speech, but 48% think it's important. So it's not even like we can say, well, you know, it's just a fringe on one side or the other. We're right down the middle on this. We're 50-50. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting how that kind of breaks down too. So uh, men kind of view that are more likely kind of view that it's suppressing free speech in the name of political correctness, uh, whereas women kind of tend to line on the side more of uh, it's an important way to kind of hold public figures accountable. If if you have these offensive views and people are coming out and saying, hey, you shouldn't say that, or maybe if you're like a celebrity and you lose endorsements or uh, uh, jobs because of your Don Cherry, views. Don Cherry, yeah, this, use an example you pulled up here. Yeah, 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 Don Cherry, exactly, uh, which is kind of one of the more famous Canadian ones. So he he uh, went on the air during an intermission and uh, had somewhat of a, a, a tirade that people viewed as offensive towards new Canadians about how they didn't respect uh, veterans by not wearing poppies ahead of Remembrance Day. Uh, and he refused to apologize and then was fired. Um, so in cases like that, there are a lot of people out there who feel that, okay, Don Cherry specifically is free speech is being suppressed. But then on the other end, it's like, okay, well, if he does view these things and he's not apologizing for them, he doesn't understand why people find it, took offense to it or find it offensive or why he shouldn't be saying these things on public, then we need this kind of council culture to hold him accountable. You follow that with the next question about self-censorship. And this, I think, is, this is such a big one right now because I think many people now, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't have it in the back of their mind when something comes up that they are not going, oh, can, can I say that? And I think people are even saying that now, John, with things that aren't offensive, but we're so skittish about, oh, I don't want to say something that could be misconstrued because I'm going to get in trouble. You ask people about how often they're biting their tongue and how often they're choosing words differently and not just saying what they think. And it's a pretty big number that, and I'm not surprised by that at all, that's saying, yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah, overall, 13% uh, of Canadians say that they hold their tongue multiple times a day. 15% say it's at least once a day. 23% say a few times a week. And then 35%, which is the largest group, say only rarely. And 14% say almost never. So for about half of Canadians, they say it's something that happens to them at least once a week, a few times a week, that they're, they're, they think of something that they want to say and they kind of think better of it. I'm actually surprised it's not higher than that. And, and I, I truly, well, maybe it's just some people <laughs> do it way more often. And so, and it's because, and, and maybe it's the circumstance. Maybe I, I would think that because I work in the media and therefore people around me are doing it 
obviously are, are paying attention more and maybe someone who works as an accountant wouldn't think that as much, but it, it just, it seems to me, I'm surprised it's not a higher number. Yeah. It, I mean, it does vary a little bit, um, by age. So, and, uh, there has been some of some other research out there that feel that says that, uh, older people tend to not think as much about what other people think of them. So they, they kind of hold their tongue less. Um, but I thought like, it was kind of interesting kind of on the political spectrum that we, we broke it down by people's previous votes. So people who voted conservative were much more likely to say that they were doing it multiple times a day. Uh, the people who voted for the people's party of Canada, they were the most likely 26% of them say that they're holding their tongue multiple times a day. Whereas for people that voted liberal, that was 10% and people who voted NDP, that was about 8%. Here's where, uh, I think a lot of the culture war is being fought right now and glad you went and did something here university campuses, college campuses. And, um, the question was university campuses or the, the statement university campuses should prohibit speakers who promote offensive views about race or gender. 58% overall say yes, those people should not be allowed on university campuses. The one thing, and I don't know how you follow that up, John, I don't know how you whittle this down further. Who decides if it's offensive? Because it seems that you start spinning into a circle. Well, that someone says it's offensive, therefore they think it's offensive and therefore the view is offensive. And like, this is where it gets so complicated is there's no way to define what is offensive before saying that offense should not be allowed on campus. Yeah. And I think that's kind of presents the limitations of, of, of the survey kind of in general is that we, we kind of put that statement out there. People were had the option to say kind of strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Um, but again, it kind of leaves it open to interpretation as to what offensive is. So, I mean, I, it, it does seem like it is a large number. So 58% say that, that they should be prohibited from campus. But I mean, there has been like quite a few, um, examples have gone that were kind of widely in the headlines that maybe people kind of couldn't bring to their mind when they answer these sort of questions. Uh, but you're right, it is you do have to kind of go into the weeds a bit more if you wanted to say, okay, well, who defines what offensive is? What are these offensive views? Uh, more so than the than this kind of question on the survey did. Yeah, because I mean, look, if someone comes on, if someone is known to use racial epithets, you know, I think most people across the board would probably say, yeah, I, I would agree that that's offensive. And if there's no purpose for it, and I don't know what the purpose would be, but if there's, you know, if it's just to be shocking, yeah, we don't need those people on campus. But if they're simply holding out a view or talking about something in an, in a intellectual or an academic way that someone may say, I'm not comfortable with that. You're right. How do you then define that word offensive? And really, would, would you agree? I, I would say that defining offensive seems to be the underlying thing behind almost all of this. How do we define what's offensive? Because what's offensive to one may not be to another. Yeah. And I think that is kind of what, um, like you said, that kind of does kind of underscore a lot of this because I, I, we, we, as I said earlier, we kind of broke down, um, the respondents into these different groups. And I think as you would kind of go along that kind of spectrum, uh, people who are kind of more on the far side of, uh, kind of, okay, yeah, we should, we should be canceling people to kind of hold them accountable. We should prohibit speakers from campus. They would probably have a broader definition of what, like what offensive views are versus say on the other, other end of the spectrum. But it, it is like difficult and uh, you can only ask so many questions in a survey. Of course, so it, of course. It, it does kind of, uh, 
it does kind of leave some things open to interpretation. That, sure. that is definitely not a shot at the survey. There's a lot of great stuff yeah. in here. Uh, I, and uh, one more example on this, just to show how difficult that question is. I don't know if you saw this, but um, there is a bar in Texas that was on social media in the last couple of days because there's a bar and it has men's and women's bathroom, obviously. And the way that it's marked, which one is the men's and which one is the woman's door is it's got a picture of Bruce Jenner in his old days as a man for the men and Caitlyn Jenner on the women's side. And people were outraged by this. People were furious on social media about this. And then Caitlyn Jenner checked in and went, this is hilarious. And it's like, wait a second, if the person who's the subject of this doesn't think that it's offensive, should anybody else? But it, like, it becomes so difficult to whittle down what really should be offensive and who's offended and getting to the nut of everything you're talking about here. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, yeah. It, one of the reasons why we kind of undertook this is to try to maybe explore some of these angles and it is, it, yeah, it's so difficult. And I think there are so many things now where it is maybe something like a lot of times it's like a tempest in a teapot in a lot of ways where it's a, like a small, a small issue of bathroom signs in Texas, for example, uh, that gets kind of blown out of proportion, uh, and and then you kind of talk to the people involved and there there isn't nearly as much kind of controversy, whereas it mm. kind of gets on social media, it gets completely polarized and people kind of have these view, different views on it. Uh, whereas it, maybe before the existence of social media, this this wouldn't have even been something that anybody put any thought into at all. One very, I think for most of us, uh, very encouraging thing, and we're going to wrap with this one, one very encouraging thing from your survey you asked about classic literature that may have things in it that would be considered offensive to some and asked, is it's okay that classic literature is republished with offensive words censored or changed almost across the board, overwhelmingly people disagree with that and seem to say, look, it seems to be anyway, that was written at a different time. It's in a different era. We can learn. I don't know what the reason was. I'm, I'm adding the editorial comment about why they may say this, but overwhelmingly people think seemingly it's okay for old literature to have things in it that may not be with our times today. Yeah, and it's and it's been a debate that's happened a lot this year. Specifically, uh, a British publisher Royal Royal Doll yes. came out, and they released new versions of his classic children's books with some words changed and removed. Um, and yeah, a lot of people find that that they they don't want to see that. They want to they want those kind of classic literature to maintain the way that they were uh, because it was of its era. Uh, and maybe it does provide maybe a teaching point if you put that word in there. You can those offensive words in there, at least you can say, okay, this was what people thought at the time. That's not okay now, as opposed to just completely scrubbing it. Maybe, maybe that's kind of where people look at it and they say, okay, well, we should just leave it the way it is. And yeah, 75% of Canadians say, or disagree that it's okay that, that classic literature is republished with offensive words. Though to me, I, I thought there was an interesting kind of delineation. Younger people are much more likely to be okay with changing classic literature. 35% of 18 to 24 year olds uh, agree with that saying it's okay to change it whereas uh that number is below 20 percent for all other age groups i thought that was kind of interesting so maybe there is a bit of uh a changing mindset for 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 younger canadians you know what question and and again i'm not criticizing but what question i would have loved to ask as a follow-up and i know you can't ask every follow-up question that's not how polling works if you read a lyric from a very popular song that was offensive to most people would you be okay if you demanded the artist change that lyric or is it art 
And I, I'm betting you that most of them would have said, no, you can't change that. That's what they intended. That's the art. And it becomes this conundrum of, well, then why would you say that an old art author from a hundred years ago should have to change something? I, the, it's so, again, there's so much nuance in these things. It's really hard to get to it. You've done a great job, but I'd love to know the answer of what they would say, those younger people. Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting too, that there is like a bit more of um, uh, kind of uh, resistance to changing the written word versus kind of the kind of free speech elements of letting people speak on campus uh, in, a, in a more free way or even with offensive views uh, or people views that are deemed offensive. So people are more protective of the written word than they are of kind of the spoken word in some ways, uh, which is kind of, yeah, one of those interesting nuances that it is. comes up with these it things. Uh, fascinating study here, John. Uh, John Rowe with uh, Angus Reid, research associated there. Uh, really appreciate doing this. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I look forward to reading all the rest of it. Yeah, and uh, we'll be publishing the next part next week. And uh, thanks for having me on, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.